Great to see everybody. We're gonna, I'm going to adjust up here. We've got new toys we're messing with, so we're figuring things out. It's great to see everybody. Glad you're here. At least it's fairly cool in here, comparative to outside. Let me pull up my Bible here because I'm, I'm gonna, we're going to get in the Word tonight. There's some things I want to share scripture-wise that are going to work with us. So I, if you would, if you would like, go ahead and turn in your Bible to... Corinthians, hold on, let me look it up. thought I had that pulled up already. Oh, I do, I think. Yeah, here it is. So go to uh, 1 Corinthians. Get the right version here. Let's go to, I'm going to use tonight on this particular piece... We'll start with the NIV, and we use 1984 version. Do y'all know there's different NIV versions, right? There's several. 1984 was the one that I got really used to using. And then in, I don't know if it was the 90s they came out, where they began to shift and blur the gender lines. And that was pretty controversial for Zondervan to do that. Uh, to this day, I still tend to go back to the 84 version. So if you ever see NIV on the screen you'll notice it still has gender references to God as male and, and sir and man and yes. and uh, it's, So that's intentional on my part just because that's what I was so used to. So it's kind of weird, you know, going back and, you know, mixing translations and whatnot. So anyway, that's what I'm using tonight if you want to look. And we're going to start. We'll pick up... Um, All right, I'll tell you where to go in a minute, but go to 2 Corinthians, and we'll pick it up. It's all on the screen here, so I wanted to, what I want to do is I'm going to backtrack and pick up some context. Remember what we say in here? Context is king, and that's important because when we start talking about things like what we're going to talk about tonight, church discipline. Yeah, I thought we, I, th I wondered how that would sound. That is like an unheard of phrase, an unheard of term. So we're going to talk a little bit about that tonight. And then we're also going to talk about the Lord's uh, Supper, Holy Communion. And I want to be able to get some context because if you read the Corinthians piece of that, somebody's car, that's what that is. So somebody sat on their keys or something. So if you read uh, in regards to the Lord's Supper, the Corinthians version of that, you're going to see some scary stuff. Like if you eat of it in an unworthy manner. I mean, you're going to drop dead. I mean, so it's actually scared a lot of denominations and people into having a closed communion where they'll actually say, if you're not a follower of Jesus, or some will even say, if you are not a member of this church, we ask you to refrain from taking communion. And I'm like, what? Uh, context is king. And there are whole denominations and churches and groups that because of a, a lack of understanding of context will actually proof text and build doctrines around proof texts, which is one of the most dangerous things we can do. And much of Paul's teaching had to deal with erroneous doctrine, particularly the letters to the churches. So we're going to dive into some of that. I mean, somebody told me one day, he said, you're like, a, you're like a myth buster. You're like a spiritual myth buster. You keep breaking all these things that we've held and saying, wait a minute, let's look at that from a different angle. And that's what a teacher should do. A good teacher hopefully says, here's what, how we've seen this. Let's, let's take a risk 
and step over here and see if we get a different perspective. And let's maintain biblical integrity as we do that. Sound teaching, sound theology, sound doctrine. And let's take a different run at this. And maybe, maybe it says something more. Maybe there are more nuggets and hidden treasures there than we first thought. And so I love words. I love breaking down words, breaking down sentences. I love the original languages. So that's why a lot of times I will spend what may seem like an inordinate amount of time breaking down a word. But when it comes to theology and it comes to spiritual growth and spiritual discipline and, and our journey in faith as we walk with Jesus on this path, I think it's important to split hairs. That's an area where we should be splitting hairs in terms of semantics, the way we say things, because what we say matters, your words matter, and your words carry weight. They have gravity to them. And so if anything we know about the power of words is that our words are power containers. Just ask anybody who's grown up in a family whose parents were consistently negative and telling them they were worthless, telling them they weren't wanted. They never wish, they wish they were never born. You will never amount to anything. How many of y'all know those words have gravity and weight? Well, just as they do in the negative, they also have gravity and weight in the positive. Amen? That's why I'm a positivity maniac, because we have got to counterbalance what the world has brought us and say, you know what? I think there's a better way. Let's see. This, if the gospel is good news, let's find the good in it. Amen? Now, let's be honest and have integrity with, with the scary stuff, and then we're going to unpack some of that tonight. Hopefully, this will be helpful. Let's pray as we get started. Father, in Jesus' name, we thank you for the privilege of this journey. Father, in this equipped class, our heart is to come before you as disciples, as sons and daughters of Jesus, as followers of Christ, and to say our hearts are open. So I'm asking as a favor to a good father, would you open our eyes that we may see would you open our ears that we may hear? And would you open our hearts that we may receive and embrace and know, know by experience, to know-sco, to know the truth, the truth that makes us free. And Father, our declaration is in line with John chapter 8, verse 36. To whom the Son sets free is free indeed. And so we embrace our freedom in Jesus, even as we've been talking on Sunday, our identity in Christ. We receive that. And Father, we thank you that we have been made to be holy, blameless, and above reproach, unaccusable in your sight, according to your word. And we lean into and embrace the truth of that word. May it permeate our minds and our hearts and go deep down into the soil of our lives and bring forth a great and bountiful harvest. A harvest of hope, a harvest of transformation, a harvest of life. And we speak and we declare that in the name of Jesus. And everyone said, amen. All right, now we're postured for discipleship, amen? So let's dive in together, and Russ, if you will, You'll notice our screen. Start here. That was a reminder for me where we left off last time, so I've just called it like it is. So we're going to talk about chapter 7. That's where we're at right now in lesson 2. And if you would go into that, Russ, go ahead and bring that up. Chapter 7, lesson 3, and we're talking about church leadership. We're going to just end that, like the last phrase of that section, then we're going to go right in to lesson 3. The Bible puts a lot of importance on the diversity of the church. Now, I love this statement. 
Many different people from all walks of life who bring different gifts and talents to the body of Christ. Yet equally important is an unshakable unity that comes from having Jesus Christ as our common foundation. Let me just, just I want you to keep your eyes on that statement for just a minute. The church, we were at in Abilene for a number of years, and we were part of a movement called Every Nation Churches and Ministries. And in that, one of the greatest values that was in that movement was diversity. Uh, uh, ethnic diversity, cultural diversity. And so it was not uncommon that most of our churches had a complete mix of, of ethnicities, of people, from different walks of life, socioeconomic, different walks of life, color and culture. And so our churches, and I used to say our church in Abilene, I'd say, we look like heaven. Because literally, when you go to heaven, we're going to be hanging out with people we never thought we would here on this planet. And so the Lord thrust me into a situation where I finally found, I actually found myself as the pastor of a church that was 45% African American. And I went to some of the top leaders in the community of Abilene, and I sat down with the top spiritual leaders and the top governmental leaders who were African American, and I sat down with them. I literally called a meeting. And I took my associate pastor, who was African-American, that I hired the first 10 days I was on the job. He's retired military, and I took Pastor Rich Brown and with me, and I said, Rich, I need help because I'm a white boy. I'm a white, white boy from West Texas. And I said, here's the deal. I know I'm white, and I'm going to be honest about it. Because when I was talking to Rich, I said, how can, how can I serve the African-American com community when I, I'm unfamiliar with and ignorant of, what, of the plight? I'm ignorant. I'm confused about the whole thing, racism and all that. I played football, played sports all my life, and to me, I didn't see color on the field. And because of that, that was a good thing for me because when I got off the field, I still didn't see color. Because we were on the team. We had a goal. We were pushing the ball down the field together. And we were doing something together. And so, to me, that was natural. But then, in other arenas of life, it was, we were so segregated in other things. So I said, Pastor Rich, help me. So we scheduled this meeting with these top leaders. And I went and I sat down in their offices and their studies and their churches. Sometimes in pews. Sometimes at a restaurant. And every one of them I sat down with and I said this. My name is Jimmy Pruitt. I'm a white boy from West Texas. And I can tell you right now, I'm going to inadvertently offend you. And it is not on purpose. I told him, I said, I'm ignorant. And I mean that in the truest sense of that word, ignorant. I just don't know. So I said, would you mentor me? Would you help me? I just get, ugh, I get emotional talking about it. Because it was such a profound moment as I sat down with these precious men and these pastors and these leaders. And I just said, sir, I don't understand. And I'm sorry I don't understand. I apologize up front. But help me understand. Help me understand because most white people don't understand racism. We just don't. And we don't understand your plight. We don't understand your issues. And even when you tell us, we still don't get it because we've not had to live it. And so I just went in there honest. And you know what that did? It shattered barriers from the beginning. And it turned into 10 years of, of an amazing run in Abilene. We were, we were there pastoring for 10 years. And I was the first white guy that was ever asked to open the citywide Martin Luther King banquet, which was 
sacred ground. I'm telling you, it was sacred ground. I felt like I had been invited to, I had been invited into a holy place. And I was a nervous, I was more nervous saying a prayer. And y'all know me, I don't get nervous praying, right? I pray all the time. But I, I, there was something about the gravity of that and the weight of it and the importance of it that a white guy was invited to step up and, and stand on that sacred platform. And after that, I was invited to actually host and, and actually be a part of, the, of another one. But what had happened was we decided that racial diversity was more important to us as a value that we had more in common than we have different. And let's find those commonalities. And I'm telling you, the church is one of the most segregated places in America. And I can't remember if it was Billy Graham, somebody knows who said that. Somebody said that. Somebody famous. I, I've, I've heard it so many times I've lost who it was. But it, it has been said it's the most segregated hour in America is Sunday morning church. And it ought not be. And so we learned in our little church in Abilene, Grace Point Church, we learned how to do life together. And I'm telling you, it was awkward. I, there, almost every Sunday, I'd try to be relevant to their community. Man, just sometimes you just got to give it up and be yourself, right? And so Miss Angel Bradbury, who sat on the front row, would come up to me and she'd say, Pasta, you know I love you, but don't ever say that again. I mean, she would just call it out. And Miss Angel coached and mentored me for 10 years. And for 10 years, I pretty much stuck my foot in my mouth. Trying, I thought it'd be funny, clever, and it never was. And they would humor me, and they were sweet because they knew my heart. And I'm telling you, God built something amazing in that community. The only, it was the only racially diverse church in Abilene. And, of course, Abilene thinks it's West Texas. Anybody, anybody east of Weatherford thinks, or, or west of Weatherford thinks they're West Texas. But, but it's the only racially diverse church in that, in that community. And uh, I look at those 10 years as some of the most precious times. But hard. It was hard ground. It was rough, but it was worth the work. So this idea of diversity is so important that we learn. In fact, we did a, remember Annette, we did an eight-week series on, on confusion, on racial diversity. And we had different people come in and speak and talk to the issues. And it was hard to hear, and it was controversial, and it was tough. But it was so worth, so worth stepping into that. And, uh, and God blessed and touched that. So the church should not be the most segregated place in America. Amen? Amen. We've got to learn to lay our stuff down. And, and it's worth the work, worth the effort. Let's go to the next one, Russ. The early church was not merely an organization, but a living organism. I always say, is it an organization or is the church an organism? And the answer is yes. <laughs> it's, yeah, it's both and. We have to have both. And both of those elements uh, can get crossed and sometimes they work together and sometimes they don't. And the struggle is I lean towards, on a personal level, towards the organism side of things. I love the organic nature of the body of Christ and church. The organization piece, that's, that's something we, we do. We need to do and it's necessary. But I would lean, lean more like 70-30 towards the organism piece. That's the way the church today should be. Still, without some organization structure, even a spirit-led movement can turn into chaos. 
And we saw that in every nation in 2005 when the wheels came off of it. And, uh, and we all went through a, a complete reorganization of over a thousand churches reorganizing. And, and it, was, it was painful, but we needed to because we had outgrown our structure. And that happens sometimes. So the early church in Jerusalem, it gives a perfect... Go ahead and go to the next slide, slide Russ. The early church in Jerusalem gives a perfect example of this truth in Acts 6, 1 through 7. Every day the believers distributed food to the widows in their community. In the first century world, widows had little or no means of support. They were literally alone. But some of the widows were being overlooked. So that presented a problem. Now let's go to the next slide. The 12 apostles, the leaders of the early church, knew they could not address important logistical issues while keeping their focus on the ministry of the Word of God, the ministry of the Word and prayer, the Scripture says. So they appointed several others to care for the widows. This is a compelling picture of different people with differing gifts serving the body of Christ in different ways. Here's the bottom line. Each of us has a lane to run in. I hated track in high school, but I was forced to run track if I wanted to play football. That was our coach's way of leveraging all of us to play, to run track, or we couldn't have filled out a track team. So they made us run, and I hated it. But I learned a few things about it, and one was if you have a lane assignment... That assignment doesn't change in the middle of the race. And I remember one time I got disqualified from a race. The coaches didn't know it, but I was silently relieved because I did not want to run that race. But I got disqualified because I stepped on the line and one of the judges saw me and they called me out. And I was like, what? And he said, you stepped over the line. And so what happened? I wasn't staying in my lane. Here's the thing. God is uniquely gifted Don. He's uniquely gifted Philip. He's uniquely gifted uh, Bill. He's uniquely gifted Steve. All of you, he has uniquely gifted you for certain things. Shirley, Miss Charlene, you have unique gifts. And those unique gifts, when we're all together, work together, and he create this thing called the body of Christ. But remember what we talked about last time. I don't know if you remember this two weeks ago. I said, but what happens if one part of the body doesn't show up? Have you ever, I'm just going to just throw this out there, in the middle of the night, nature calls, you need to get up and take care of business, and what you don't know is that your leg has fallen completely asleep. Am I the only human that's ever happened to? And when you get out of bed, your leg has disappeared from the face of the planet. You know what I'm saying? And it's like literally dead. It's gone. You've cut off the circulation and it's gone. Or have you ever been hit in the middle of the night by a hand and you're like, what? And it's your own hand that has fallen asleep because you were sleeping on it and it's dead. Has that happened to anybody else besides me? All right, a couple of you admit it. So here's the deal. When one part of my body decides not to work, my body has now been rendered dysfunctional. And what happens in the church world and the church life is that God brings you to church. Let me just say something too. I'm not going to get off on a Francis Chan rant here because he does it a lot better than I do. But the consumerism that has come into the American church has gripped us to the point of where I like this one but I don't like this. And it's like going to a shopping mall shopping for churches now. What is this doing for me? What kind of programs do you have for me and my family? What can you do for me, me, me? I me, myself, and I, the unholy trinity, right? What can you do? Instead of, we've lost the idea that a church should be a family. A church should be a body. 
that functions together. And sometimes when one part of the body doesn't work as it should, the other comes in and lifts it up and compensates. I've got, a, I've got a bad ear over here, tinnitus, that I am believing God for healing. I pray on a constant basis. I've seen breakthroughs at times and then other times setbacks. What I've noticed, though, is my ear over here, this is from years of playing electric guitar and bands, and my mom always said, that's going to damage your hearing. You know what? Mama's right. So that ear is messed up, but what's happened is this one has become way more sensitive. It's like it's literally compensating for what's going on over here. So now, I hear things very loud over here and diminished over here. So now everything's kind of like this. So when I put my earbuds on, I, I get on my phone and I do this little slider over so I create balance in my hearing. And I do that with everything I have because that's, that's how I have to balance everything out. But my body is compensating for something that's dysfunctional, not functioning properly. And it, the same thing happens in the body of Christ. But if we're a church of consumers who just show up, sit back and wait for something to be done for us, then we're not functioning as the body of Christ. What's powerful in the body of Christ and what we've seen through the years is when people show up and they say something like this, which Ryan said the other day, he goes, man, I'm here to serve. I'm brand new in town. I just landed. I'm just figuring it out. I don't even know how to get around town yet, but I'm here to serve. What do you need done? Like, well, I, so here's what I asked Ryan. May I ask him the golden question? I said, so what do you like to do? And I was expecting a spiritual resume. Well, I've been a teacher, and I've been a, you know, I've been, been a deacon, I've been a, an elder, you know, and you're, you know, and I get that a lot, I'm not going to lie. But when somebody just says, I just want to serve, I'm like, oh my gosh, can we clone you by about 700? So the idea there is showing up and saying, I'm ready to go, and I'm ready to become family, as opposed to, I'm just here shopping for a church. Does that make sense? Now, Francis Chan rants a lot better than that than I do, but I'm telling you, it's a big deal in America right now where we've become consumers instead of family members of the body of Christ. So here's number one, uh, chapter seven, lesson three. If you have your book, follow along. If not, it's on the screen. What five roles of authority and leadership did God place in the church? I'm going to move quickly now. Ephesians 4.11. Listen to this. And he gave the apostles. Now, the word apostle, before you just vault into, that means leader over a movement. Biblically, apostle means sent one, and it literally means missionaries. That's what that means. And we need to be clear on that definition. This is why definitions are important. Because if not, because depending on what movement you came out of, apostle might have been a leader of, of, of 20 churches, which biblically, that's an overseer. But, but we've, we've sort of changed the meanings over time, and culturally we've given meanings to words. Let's go back to say what the word means. It means sent one. Paul was an apostle. Why? Because he did the missionary journeys. He was sent by God on mission. Why? He was an apostle. See, see what I'm saying? Does that make sense? I want to be clear on that. So here's the, the, rule, the roles of authority and leadership. Apostle. Prophets. Remember what prophets do. They foretell and foretell. There's two elements of that. Both. Both. Uh, there's the evangelists. What do the evangelists do? Evangelists have a gift for teaching, preaching, speaking the gospel. And evangelists can show up in an elevator and people get born again. I can show up in an elevator and everybody's just like, let me off of this elevator. Shut this guy up. But uh, remember uh, Brown. What was his name? Clyde Brown in Midland, Texas. Home builder for many, many years. And in church, out loud, he said, Amen. Every time, he said, Amen. 
Yeah, he was just one of those guys, and he was this precious man, but he was an evangelist. And I kid you not, every elevator ride anyone has taken with Clyde Brown, they heard the gospel in a minute. He had a one-minute miracle, man. He just would deliver it, and people get born again on elevators with Clyde Brown. Why? Because he has the gift of an evangelist. Now, here's the deal. All of us are called to evangelize, but that doesn't mean we all have the gift of the evangelist or hold the office of. So that's one of the five, evangelists. Another one are the shepherds. The shepherds are the pastors. Now, interesting, is it fivefold or fourfold? And it's actually both. The answer is yes. So the shepherds and, pa and teachers could be called pastor-teacher. And that's really my, one of my roles. That's, that's where my heart is. I'm a pastor-teacher. I love to teach. I love to study. I'm nerdy like that. I told them that I was having so much fun this afternoon because I got to study. I was all nerded out over it because I was digging into these words. But I love that because I'm in my lane. That's what I love to do. So the shepherds and teachers. So are there five or are there four? And the answer is yes. That conjunction there, Kai, ties those two together. Pastor, teacher. So it could be either way. They're both accurate. So here's the next one. What five role, uh, What is the job? Well, we already did that one. What is the job? Next, next one. What is the job of these leaders? Ephesians 4.12. Listen to this. This is where we get a description of what these leaders are supposed to do. This is what's supposed to happen. They are to equip the saints for the work of ministry. Now, classically in churches, we think, okay, the pastor, the teacher, the evangelist, the apostle, the missionaries... Our role as the church is to have them out winning people to Jesus so we can grow our church. They should be the ones out doing visitation. They're the ones who should be out doing. And that's actually backwards. And we've actually hindered the movement of the kingdom in America. We're just now beginning to turn a little bit. And I read a report today that where at one point they thought that the church in the world was diminishing. They're now getting feedback and statistic back that the church is now growing again. But let me tell you something. It's not growing in America. It's growing in Africa, in the Sudan, and it's growing in China. The church is exploding across the world, but not here. But I would like to turn the tide on that, wouldn't you? So let's try to get the horse back in front of the cart. You know what I'm saying? Instead of the cart in front of the horse. And here it is. Here's the role. My job is to equip the saints for the work of ministry. I found out tonight that Michael McClellan, he came and apologized to me. He said, he said Pastor Jimmy, I have to tell you something. I'm going to be leaving you on Wednesday night. I said, man, what are you doing? He goes, I'm going to be in here with the students doing ministry. And I say, yes, yes, I'm so happy for you. He goes, really? I thought you might not be happy about that. I said, the goal of this group here is to go. And wouldn't it be cool in about two years if none of you were in here because you're all out leading ministries on Wednesday night and we have a whole new batch of people in here? Is that not the idea? Equipping the saints for the work of ministry. The goal here is not to come to endless Bible studies. Ah, ah, no way. I, man, not for me. I, be, I, wanna, I don't want to ride the pine. I want to be doing something. I was a terrible second stringer in sports. I was like, coach, put me in. I played, I did kickoff team. I did punt return. I did, uh, I was a wingback on defense. I mean, on offense. I was a cornerback on defense. I played nearly every play of the game. And the ones I wasn't in on, I was bugged. I was like, let me in. I mean, I, I cannot stand riding the pine. 
God wired me to be on the field. So here's the deal. Why would all of you want to just come here and listen to Bible studies all the time when there's so much to be done? Amen? Amen. I'm not getting on to you for being here. I'm glad you're here. This is awesome. But here's the deal. The goal is not to stay here from now on. The goal is how do we take what we're learning here in these conversations and these studies and say, now how do I take that into my world? How do I take that out to where I work, where I live, and where I play, and literally leak out life everywhere I go? How do I do it? That's the goal of this. So here's the goal. Equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ. If any of you ever lifted weights, you know you don't gain muscle except for one thing. It's called resistance. Persecution is what built the church in the first century. Resistance. So if you ever are walking with God and you think, my gosh, why is this getting harder? You think I'm learning more. I'm getting excited about Jesus. And I feel like there's more weight on me. It's because the God's putting, stacking more plates on you so you can get stronger and stronger and stronger. And that's the goal here, to be built up. Look at verse 13. Until we all attain to the unity of the faith. Have we attained to that yet? Oh, hello. No, not quite. But we're going to do this until that happens. So if it hasn't happened yet, we've got to continue to do what we're doing. Equipping the saints. And of the knowledge of the Son of God. To mature manhood. The goal, Paul said, my goal is to mature the body of Christ. My goal is to see that you grow up. Look what it says. To the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. We're not there yet. That's why we continue to do what we're doing. Next slide, Russ. Number three, how long will these gifts operate in the church? Ephesians 4.13, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure, the stature, the fullness of Christ. Number four, what is the result of being in a church where these five ministries are operating? I love this. Verse 14, so that we may no longer be children. This is Paul's nice way of saying it's time to grow up. We have got to grow up. We've got to get past the building. We've got to get past the programs. We've got to get past the me, me, me and say, what can I do to help? What can I do to contribute? What can I do to serve? Father God, what would you have me do? Can you imagine if 400 people, we had around 400 people last Sunday. Can you imagine if 400 people between two services, every one of them walked in this building and they had prayed on the way to church, Father, what would you have me do? What would you have me say? Who would you have me connect with today? Did you know that every one of you have opportunities for ministry, even if you're just attending a service? Because all these hallway conversations are critical let me tell you, a lot of life change happens in here, but a lot more happens out there. It's the casual conversation in the parking lot. It's, it's the connection that happens over at Gaddy's while you're knocking down a salad bar over there, and you see somebody that was in church, you go, hey, how's it going? Tell me your name again, and you meet and you connect. That's where life happens. It happens in this hallway. It happens while you're out there eating donut holes and, and wolfing down coffee. It happens everywhere around this building, not just in here. And you have the opportunity, whether you're holding a microphone, playing a guitar or drums up on the podium, whether you're passing a plate, no matter what you're doing, it doesn't matter. When you show up, you're ministry looking for a place to happen. When we cry out for revival, I've stopped praying for revival. I just say, Lord, I am a revival looking for a place to break out. 
We need to quit praying for it and just start being it. Amen? Amen. All right, I'm about to start preaching, so hang in there. Listen to this. From whom the whole body. How is the body of Christ? Okay, so... <laughs> okay, here it is. How is the body of Christ joined and held together? What brings this together? Verse 16. He says this, from whom the whole body joined and held together. Look at this. By every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. In other words, as the body is function as it was designed to do. It's like I said, you, you wake up in the middle of the night, your leg's completely asleep, you don't know it, you step out of bed and you're on the floor, right? And you're sucking rug in, in a nanosecond. What happened? Your body wasn't functioning properly. So when it does function properly, you run faster, you lift more, you're more in, in tune with everything, you got better balance, vertigo's out the window, you're in harmony, the body is working as it was designed and equipped to do. That's what he's saying when this thing works together and Christ joins all that and it builds Builds itself up in love. So, chapter seven, we're going to talk about church discipline. Woohoo! Everybody excited? All right. What are some of the responsibilities of pastors, elders, and spiritual leaders? So, let's just un unpack this just for a minute. Pay careful attention. This is Acts chapter 20, verse 28. And remember, it was Dr. Luke who wrote the book of Acts. So, you have the book of Luke. And at the end of Luke, it dovetails perfectly into the beginning of Acts. So Luke, it's like you could almost say it's Luke 1, Luke 2. So he takes that, he wrote the Gospel of Luke, then he wrote the history and the Acts of the Apostles, the movement of the church. So that's who's, who's writing here. He says this, Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock, in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. It's a charge to leaders. Now, how do we define leaders? Now, there's, there's biblical leaders that are specific, like, for example, pastors, elders, spiritual leaders. But here's what I contend, in addition to that, is that every person here is a leader. You're leading somebody. You're leading by example. You're modeling a life. Somebody is watching your life and learning from you. Somebody. Now, John Maxwell, best definition of leadership I ever heard, he said, leadership is serving. And serving is leadership. We lead by serving. When I serve somebody, I'm leading. When I lead somebody, I'm serving. They're synonymous to me. We had in Abilene, we had one of our mottos was connect, grow, serve. My son, when he went to Houston and started, and they launched City Life Church there, which they've been there nine years now. Grow, he's grown a beautiful church there. And their, their saying is connect, grow, lead. And he and I had a conversation about that. I said, why didn't you use serve? He goes, it's the same thing. I said, you're right. That was my own definition. You're right. You're absolutely right. I said that for years. He picked up on it. So connect, grow, serve, connect, grow, lead. It's the same thing. So listen to this. Pay careful attention to yourselves in all the fog which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God which he obtained with his own blood. Now to care for the church of God does not mean to enable brokenness. I used to be the guy as a young minister 
who every time there was a need, I was there. Every time there was an issue, I was there. Every time somebody needed mending, I was there trying to mend. If they needed counsel, I was there trying. I almost killed myself in the first few years of ministry because I was trying to do it all. And the Lord finally tapped me on the shoulder. He goes, when are you going to listen to me? And I learned about codependency and enablement as I continued to grow and study in the therapeutic side of things. I realized I was codependent on the church. I'd created a, my own culture where they needed me and I needed them. And I liked it when they called me and asked, hey, can I get your advice on this? And I'd be like, yeah, of course. Oh, I'm so glad you called. By the way, I'm number two on the Enneagram, so that fits perfectly with me. So I'm like, yeah, what can I do? And the Lord finally just said, started telling me to shut up, basically. Yeah, I, mean, I don't know how the Holy Spirit talks to you, but he's pretty frank with me. He's like, shut up. Stop. It's never elaborate. It's just to the point. And Annette even shared with some friends about how patient I am because what I learned the hard way was that when I get in and try to fix situations, I actually get ahead of God. Do you know what happened to Abraham when he got ahead of God? He produced Ishmael. Produced an Ishmael. Have you ever produced an Ishmael? Do you know what Ishmael became? Ishmael became the enemy later on. A lot of times the things we produce by getting ahead of God and going out ahead of God and saying, Lord, I'm going to go do this. Please bless me as I go. That's the wrong order. What we have to do is say, Lord, what do you want done? What do you want said? Should I go in there? And if he, says, if he doesn't say, if it's not a green light, I just don't go anymore. So there are times when it's better to wait and let somebody go through something because God may be doing something. And by you getting in there, it's like you with your little Tonka toy trying to help daddy out changing the tire got your little, your little rubber mallet and your little plastic wrench and you're trying to take lug nuts off with a Tonka toy and your dad's just waiting for you to get tired and give up and knurl the end of that thing and then he says alright move out of the way let me get this and I, I've lost count in 35 years of doing this how many times God has said stop do not rescue them codependency in the church is massive it's epidemic it's pandemic because we think that the call to love is the call to fix. And the call to love is not a call to fix. Sometimes it's a call to wait. And sometimes you've got to let somebody fall before they're ready to even hear counsel or hear God's voice. I, I needed to fall. Maybe y'all had it together way more than I did. But I, I, I was stubborn that way. And sometimes I needed to crash before I was ready to go. I give up. And God says, finally, finally I can help you. Is this bearing witness with anybody? Yeah. Amen. So this idea here of growing up does not mean that our elders, our pastors, our staff are here to come fix everything. It could be we're here sometimes to say, when you call and ask for help, we say something like this. This is so profound. What is God saying to you about this? What is Jesus speaking to you about this situation? What is the Holy Spirit telling you to do? And I've learned to say that in counseling a lot where I just say, what's the Lord telling you to do? Well, pastor, I came because I wanted to know what I'm like. You have a relationship with him. You don't have junior Holy Spirit and I have senior Holy Spirit. You don't have B team and I have A team just because I'm a pastor. Actually, my role as a pastor teacher, as a shepherd, is to help you discover him so you can hear his voice 
Because if I tell you something, you're probably not going to do it anyway. So I've learned that too with people. Because people are going to do what they're going to do, right? So you just say, what's he saying to you? And then this is how deep counseling can get. What's he saying to you? Well, he said this, then go do it. <laughs> All right, we don't need to meet again. We're good. <laughs> go, go live life and prosper. I mean, it's like live long and prosper. So the idea there is getting people to hear him. And that's what a shepherd does. A shepherd takes a sheep to green pastures. The green pastures is, is his presence. It's him. He's the green pastures. And we've got to get people to him. That's what a shepherd does. shepherd doesn't go feed the sheep. The shepherd leads the sheep to where the food is. He's the source. Amen? Is this making sense? But we've had it backwards for so long. We think that the, pa that the pastor and the elders are the Bible answer guys. I, you know, I need a scripture for every situation. Hey, do you own a Bible? Do you own an iPhone or an Android? Sorry if you own an Android. But do you own a phone? Do you own an iPad? Do you own a computer? Guess what? You have access to a thousand translations of the Bible. Let's get you in that. So that you can begin to grow. And one day, you may not need a shepherd to take you to a green pasture because you're already there. And now you lie down beside still waters and you enjoy him perpetually. Surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life. It's a beautiful place to be. So listen to this. And, and, uh, it's in, in lesson four, we're talking about church discipline. What are some of the responsibilities of pastors, elders? Ezekiel, look at this. Son of man, prophesy against the shepherds. Of this gets dark here. This is heavy. This is the Old Covenant, Old Testament. Prophesy and say to them, even to the shepherds, thus says the Lord, uh, the Lord God, all the shepherds of Israel who have been feeding yourselves, should not shepherds feed the sheep? You eat the fat, you clothe yourselves with the wool, you slaughter the fat. That's some heavy stuff. But you do not feed the sheep. So that's some heavy responsibility that's on the shepherds. Where we have to say, are we praying? Are we bringing the word? Are we bringing Jesus? Are we preaching Jesus as Lord? Are we preaching scripture? Are we staying, are we keeping integrity of the scripture? Are, are we being... True to the word where we're not proof texting scriptures to make us feel good, but saying this is the whole counsel of the word of God. Now let's go. Let's go. Let's do this. We can do this together. The next one. How should church members relate to their pastors, elders, and spiritual leaders? Scripture speaks to that. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you. And to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves. This sounds self-serving to me to read this, but it's not. When I was in church, in fact, Pastor Steve Berger, one of my favorite pastors of all time, we served in that church for, as lay people. We were not on staff. I was working for Dave Ramsey. And while we were doing that in Nashville, uh, we attended Grace Chapel in Leapers Fork, Tennessee. Sounds like Podunkville, but it was like a 7,000-member church out in the middle of nowhere. And this church was so on fire for Jesus. But you know what? I held Pastor Steve up in high esteem. I honored him. I blessed him. I prayed for him. I lifted him up. I didn't doubt his motive. I said, man, that's a man of God. That's somebody I want to follow into the fire. I'll follow that man into a war because of his heart and his passion for Jesus. And you know what that is? It's a culture of honor. And what we witnessed there in that church where Steve, I think at the time, had been there 25 years, give or take, 
They had built a culture of honor. It wasn't an inordinate weird honor where people carried his Bible in for him in a handkerchief. I mean, we've been in those scenarios. It was where he carried his own Bible, trust me. But there was a culture of honor and mutual respect where he loved and valued the people and they loved and valued him. And it was a beautiful thing. But they'd built for 25 years. And when I came here, it was a bizarre scenario. Can I be real transparent with you here? Okay, I will anyway. When I came here, it was really weird because I'd been a senior pastor for 14 years. And so to step into this role as a manager, basically a host, you know, I was like this. All right, I'm so glad you're here. And if you would just watch the video, and Max or Randy's going to teach us now. And God bless you. You know, and then I feel like Vanna White sometimes, you know, just presenting or one of those ladies on the Price is Right turning stuff. And, and, uh, and then I'd, I'd sit down, and y'all probably don't remember this, but three and a half, nearly four years ago, at the end of the service, when I would get up here and sort of do a little five-minute wrap-up, people would get up and start leaving because I'm not Max and I'm not Randy. And I'm telling you, it was rough. And there were times when I was, I just wanted to call people out and go, excuse me, that's disrespectful what you're doing. And in other scenarios, I probably would have in other contexts. And I, I just remember sitting here, there were times when I would start praying at the end of the service and I would hear movement all over the worship center. And it was people leaving. You know what that is? That's disrespect. We need to call it what it is. Because I wasn't Randy and I wasn't Max. I was some new guy just sent here to manage the church and, and uh, host the services. And I'm telling you, it was, it was brutal there for a while. Because to a degree, this had become a video venue. And it was, I was like, wait a minute. And here's what I began to do. Y'all may not even remember this, but I began to say, this is the church of Jesus Christ. This is a viable congregation. These are the people of God. And I began to sort of fight and contend for our identity as a church in Fredericksburg. We're not just an invader from San Antonio. We're not just an extension from Crown Ridge. We are a viable church body who has gifts and has a potential to touch this city and beyond. And I began to declare that and speak it. And I began to lace it into everything I did. And it was intentional and it was strategic. And you know what's beginning to happen over three and a half years? Whoo, starting to catch it. Starting to catch it. To the point where Max came to me two years ago and said, I think Fredericksburg's ready to run on its own, and I believe you're called to lead it. And I said, yes, sir, let's go. Let's do this. So that's sort of a little history of where we came from, from the day I got here. This idea of honor and respect and esteem, uh, it took me a while to... to Check my, check my heart at the door after some of those days where I was like, okay, all right, I get it now. And even some of the other churches in town, I heard things back to me like, you're not a real pastor. I was told that by another pastor in this town. You're not a real pastor. And that's not a real church over there. That's just a video venue from San Antonio. And they called us the invaders from San Antonio. I was like, mm, okay, all right, here we go. It's this culture of honor, culture of honor, culture of honor. Guess what? It's happening. It's happening. So chapter 7, here we go. A couple more things and we'll land playing. What time is it? All right. How should church members relate to their pastor? We just, this is 1 Timothy 5, 17. Some more. Let the elders who rule well be 
well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain, and the laborer deserves his wages. There was a time as a young man, I thought that was pretentious for me, so I'm going to work so hard so I can earn the right to be in an office and study. And I had it backwards. I realized that if I don't study well and I don't prepare well, then I won't have the right thing to bring on Sunday. I couldn't bring the best I had. And I had to learn that it's okay to be in my office with the door closed and my nose in the scripture and my, my face on the carpet in my office praying and seeking God for a word for Sunday morning. And I had to learn that. Those were learned things because I was such a I grew up in such a work ethic in West Texas and, and just growing up, yes sir, no sir, yes ma'am, no ma'am, and work hard, and that, that Puritan work ethic was so deep in me, I felt like if I wasn't breaking something or fixing something with my hands, that I wasn't being faithful. And I almost worked myself to death in the early years. And I had to learn that my role, my job, is the ministry of word and prayer. And it is to be in the scripture so that I can bring the best that we have. Jerry? There's a big difference between being busy and being productive. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Good word. Good word. I agree. So now look at this. Uh, number two. How should church members relate to their pastors and elders? More scriptures along the same line. Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. So here's what I did as a young man in the church. I looked for spiritual leaders who had what I didn't have. I learned this in sports, particularly in tennis, because I wasn't a natural tennis player. I was a football player, basketball, baseball player. But we had a tennis team because it's post-high school, 3A. You played everything. And I was like, I want to get good at this. So I began to play guys that were way above my head. And you know what happened? I got beat every time. But you know what? I got better. As time went by. By the third year, me and my partner, Mike Macy, qualified for regionals. Got to play at Texas Tech in the regional qualifiers. We got crushed there. But it was amazing being in it because I would have never dreamed I would have even gotten that far. But it was because I chose to align myself with people that were better than me and take the beating. And I got better and better and better. It got to the point where the, the beginning of my... My junior year, my senior year, when, when tennis rolled around, I would challenge Coach Easterling, our tennis coach, to a match every time, after, or almost every day after practice. And he'd let me go fill up his car. He had a Datsun 260Z. Anybody remember those? He had one of those, so I loved driving his car. He let me go fill up his car. I'd come back, and we'd play a match, and he would pummel me. Or sometimes, and he'd just work me, just work me. And I got better and better and better. Look at this. Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life. Imitate their faith. I did that as a new follower of Jesus, too. I found people that loved Jesus, that were on fire, that, that were unstoppable in their faith. And I said, I want what they have. And it's the old thing I used to tell students when I was a youth pastor. If you want to be a turkey, hang around turkeys. But if you want to soar like an eagle, find some eagles and hang around them. Catch their draft. Hang around with them. See what they do. What does an eagle do? How does an eagle hunt? How does an eagle fly? How does an eagle catch those, those, those updrafts? How does an eagle do what they do? And then you imitate them. And there'll be a time when you're not imitating anymore. It becomes your own voice. And you become that. 
And that's what I've told students for years. You know what I find as adults? We need to be saying the same thing. Amen? You know, we really never grow up. We just get older and wrinkled. But we're really just, we're 14-year-olds right here, right? We're still there. We still think we can jump. We still think we can do stuff, right? Because our mind's still young, but our bodies are aging out. But sometimes we almost think we mistake age for maturity. And we realize, wait, we still need to address some things at a, at a very young level. And so we do that as teachers. Number two, look at this. How should church members relate to their pastors? Again, Hebrews 13. Obey your leaders and submit to them for they are keeping watch over your souls. Soul doesn't mean spirit. It means your body, your person. As those who will have to give an account. And listen, I go to bed with that every night. And it, it's, it's heavy sometimes. I'm not going to lie. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning. <sighs> For that would be of no advantage to you. I'd love to say it's all joy. There are some days it's not. Sometimes sheep have teeth, believe it or not. Sometimes they bite hard. <laughs> you just, sometimes you never see it coming. It's not always easy, but, but that's the ideal there. Number three, let's keep going. Who is the head of the church? Ephesians 4.15. It is not Jimmy Pruitt or Max Lucado. Or Mario Gallegos or, or Sam Gonzalez over at Alamo Ranch. Listen to this. Rather speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head. And it even identifies into Christ. This is Jesus' church and he has to sometimes tap me on the shoulder to remind me of that. And he'll tell me, Jimmy, loosen your grip. You're holding on too tight. I say, yes, Lord. And then I pray my little prayer. I've been praying, Lord, I give everyone and everything to you. I just let go again. I may do that 70 times a day, but I just keep letting go, let go, let go, let go, let go. Next one, chapter 7, lesson 4. Church is meant to be a community of people who are helping each other grow closer to God. Do you know that's what we're supposed to be doing? We're supposed to be helping each other. We're not supposed to be splitting each other and dividing and gossiping. Two things that, that get talked about more than anything, good news and gossip. That's what we always think we got to share. Good news and gossip. And sometimes as gossip gets more weight than the good news. We need to be sharing good news with each other. In other words, the process of sanctification, which we covered in chapter 2. Sanctification is the process. It's the process of growing in maturity and growing in grace and growing up which was covered in chapter 2, is not something we can do on our own. I can't grow up by myself. I need you. And you need each other, and you need me, and I need all of you. All of you contribute something to my walk with Jesus. Sometimes Jerry Fish and I have these little, these little short little conversations that we both leave going, man, our minds are just buzzing, and all week we're thinking about this stuff, right? And then we come back next week and high five and go, oh my gosh, God spoke to me through that. Listen, there's not a person in our church that I cannot learn from. And I want to always be teachable. As a pastor, I want to come in thinking I know everything. I want to come in with an open heart and say, you've got something. The Lord's showing you something that he hasn't shown me because your walk with him is unique. And I want to value that in you and say, yeah, that's amazing. There are things y'all have told me just in little casual conversations all over the building where I'm like, that is profound. That is amazing. Thank you for sharing that. Don't hold that back. We all have something to contribute. Amen? 
In any community, people will eventually offend one another or let one another down. Can I get an amen? Now here, let me just tell you something that will help you get over this. First of all, don't be enamored with the church. Be enamored with Jesus. Let me be real straight up on this. Do not be enamored with a church. When people come and tell me this is the most amazing church, I'm like, oh no, they're out. They're gone. Six months, it's over. But when people come to me and say, I'm so in love with Jesus, I'm like, oh, we can work with that. Here's what I mean. Just because you love the bride and you're enamored with the bride doesn't mean you love the groom. But let me tell you something. If you get the groom, the bride comes too. So it's getting first things first. We need to be enamored with Jesus and be grateful for the bride because the bride's going to be, she is, she does have blemishes. She does have spots because the bride is us, right? And we're all capable, right? We're all one decision away from disaster at the end of the day. We're all capable of just blowing it. Or as uh, Pastor Dwayne Sheriff used to say, pulling a big piece of stupid. That's what he called it. That's, he's from Durant, Oklahoma. That's how they talk there. We're all capable of, of crushing somebody, and, and not even on purpose. Sometimes on purpose. We just have moments where we go all flesh on somebody. And so here's the deal. In any given body, you will risk hurt. You will risk rejection. You will risk being misunderstood. You will risk having your motives doubted. I'm just talking the stuff that I get called out on. You'll, you'll risk all kinds of things, but I will tell you this, after 35 years and being absolutely decimated in churches, both as a pastor, as a staff person, as a, as a lay person, I've been crushed in all those arenas. Every time it's worth it. The risk is worth the reward because the relationships I have now in my life would not have happened if I hadn't opened myself to risk. The friends that I have that are lifelong friends because of the bride of Christ. I am who I am because of Jesus, but also because of the bride. Even the hard stuff, even the stuff that, that was bad shaped me. Now it can shape you for the good. You can become better or you can choose to be bitter. It's your choice. But when you choose well in the middle of a crisis, in the middle of getting hurt, in a church scenario, instead of running down the street. By the way, let me just, a truism, this is very personal. The way you leave one place is, is the way you're going to start another one. Hello. If you leave a place offended, you will carry that Samsonite with you to the next place. And you will unpack it over there. I, it's just brutal truth, but it is the truth. I've seen it over and over. There was a, a church in our community here that had a bobble. They just say that. I'll say it nice. They had a rough spot. And some of their people started coming over here and introducing themselves to me. I was so-and-so in this church. And I stood with one couple. And I asked him, I said, I said, are you hurt by what happened over there? And he said, yeah, we, we're, we are. And I said, you need to go back and get that right. And if God calls you to this church, you need to tell your pastor you're called here. And let him bless you. I hope he has the security to do that. Not all do. But I'm telling you, if you leave this church and you come have a conversation with me, I will not try to talk you into staying. I will bless you. I will pray for you. And I'll say, Lord, order their steps to where they're supposed to be. Can you imagine if we gave people an easier off-ramp how much more harmonious the body of Christ would be? Not everybody who leaves 
quit. Sometimes God moves people. We've got to be mature enough to handle that. Amen? And I want to walk with you through those things. I'm not saying everybody get up and leave. I'm just saying, please don't. Not all at once anyway. Because here's the deal. For every person that leaves, God brings back five more. It's a crazy how that works. And we're watching that happen right now. That'll always be the experience. By the way, if you've ever been in church, for any, there is always attrition. People leave, people come, people go, people stay. That is natural. So don't freak out when your neighbor leaves. Bless them. Don't even try to hang on to them. Just bless them. And hopefully they left well. And hopefully they left with their heart intact so that they can be productive wherever God puts them. Amen? So here's the thing about church. We'll just land the plane with this. I believe, and the reason I don't chase people when they leave and start calling them and begging them to come back, or what did we do wrong? Here's what I've learned in a long time of doing this. God places members in the body where they're supposed to be. And I trust God's process in that. If I talk somebody into something, a friend, the mirror, or the enemy will talk them out of it. So if I talk you into staying or guilt you into staying, it's just a matter of time you're going to leave anyway. So here's what I want to know. Is are you called here? Has God placed you here? And if he has, let's find your lane so we can run together down the track and advance the kingdom for the glory of God. Amen? Amen. Let's all stand together. Isn't that beautiful over there next door? Be praying for our student ministry as they're making a big transition right now from Austin uh, to Jason over there, Crystal leading worship. And, and we need to pray that the Holy Spirit will, will just ignite something amazing. So as in any transition, there's always a little shakiness, but they're, they're killing it over there. But we need to be praying for them. Amen? Let's pray together. Father, in Jesus' name, thank you for the privilege of discussing your bride, the church. And Father, the reality that uh, sometimes this is difficult. It's not always fun and pleasant. Sometimes we have to risk getting hurt, and sometimes we do get hurt. But Lord, you grant us the grace to grow through these things. The grace to grow, the grace to learn, the grace to to even have our own capacity expanded through our experience so that we don't leave bitter, we don't sit bitter, we don't stay toxic. Lord, we, we grow up and mature into all things into Christ. That's the goal, maturity. Father, teach us, and I pray for my friends here right now, teach us to know when to stay, when to stop, when not to try to rescue. When Give us discernment on timing. Knowing that the right thing at the wrong time is still the wrong thing. Give us discernment of knowing when to reach out. When to call. When to visit. When to go. And when not to. When to let you be you in a person's life. Give us discernment so that we may help others mature and grow up in Christ. I thank you for every person that's here tonight. I pray that they will leave encouraged knowing that this body of believers is growing up and becoming stronger day by day. And thank you for the vision that you are laying out for us and the strategy to accomplish that vision. We love you and honor you in Jesus' name. Everyone said amen. Amen. God bless you. Love you.